It's actually very, very cool. Look at it. Hear that? I was just like a Geiger counter to like. That's the sound of me and my family walking in an underground tunnel. It's dark. It's freezing cold. The tunnel is lined with corrugated steel. There's light at the end. It's longer than a football field. Such a fallout vibe. It's the entrance to the Diefen Bunker, a top secret underground safe house. It was built by Prime Minister John Diefenbaker in the late 1950s. Top government officials could hop on the train across the street from Parliament, arrive at that same blast tunnel, and live underground. Why did Canada need a safe house for its leaders? Three, two, one, nine. Ten years earlier, in August 1949, the Soviet Union secretly tested its first atomic bomb. This was the Cold War. I'm Melanie Ward, publisher at Canada's History. I've developed a fascination with the history of technology, especially innovations that have led to the communications technology we have today. During the Second World War and Cold War, governments around the world were chasing a technological advantage. The innovations came fast, and they were enormous. Going to the Diefen Bunker and seeing all those old-fashioned radio transmitters, huge oscilloscopes, radio and radar equipment, this may sound weird, but it reminded me of my kitchen growing up. We had those machines scattered around the house. In the late 1950s, my father was a sector superintendent for radar technology in the Arctic. He was in Cape Dyer, Baffin Island, in what is now Nunavut. He managed the biggest station on the distant early warning line, a Cold War radar defense network. Today, we take our wireless tech for granted. Watch cat videos, text friends, hail an Uber, no matter where we are. It's the water we swim in. Wireless technology has its roots in military applications that were all about surveillance. So let's get back to those Cold War roots. It's plainly stated here that the United States is going to the brink of war. All American military forces around the world are on a special alert tonight, including the Strategic Air Command. The U.S. and the Soviet Union never actually declared war on each other. They knew if one side pressed the nuclear button, the other would too. There was an acute tension in the air. It felt like World War III could be tipped off at any moment. And worse, there was a fear it could be triggered by accident. Like one Friday morning in November 1979. A computer signal set off alarms at NORAD headquarters it showed the launch of Soviet missiles. Canada and the U.S. prepped their bombers for a counterattack. A faulty computer signal which triggered a missile scare at NORAD headquarters in Colorado has the Soviet Union in an uproar. Today, the Soviet news agency TASS said another computer error could have irreparable consequences for the entire world. Brian Stewart has more. Just before 11 o'clock Friday morning, air defense computers flashed a clear message. 
Soviet missiles have been launched target North America. Two Canadian and eight American interceptors were immediately scrambled, and strategic bombers were about to go when the error was spotted within six minutes. The world had been on the edge of a full-scale nuclear war, and only a handful of people knew it. Well, the error was discovered in a matter of minutes and disaster averted. But there was a real fear that the world could have ended. I remember feeling that nuclear war was inevitable. Ottawa, this is the deal. How are you reading me now? Ottawa, read your five square. Right. There are some breaks in the dew line. The commander is just checking. Commander in chief, uh, sir, this is the commander of Northern. I've been advised by uh, my intelligence section that there are some uh, breaks in the distant early warning line uh, in the eastern portion near Greenland. That's from a film NORAD made about what nuclear doomsday would look like from the control center. The military commander is so calm, analytical. A uh, strength of 12 uh, uh, unknown objects assumed to be uh, hostile. Meanwhile, uh, Dio, I understand that we have received the nuclear authority uh, from the Canadian government. Good. Check out the authentication. Yes, sir. You authenticated. We got ours. Okay. Looks like we're in business. The two sides of the Cold War had an unspoken agreement. Not to trivialize, but it makes me think of two kids. You don't knock my sandcastle down, and I won't knock yours down. Except with bombs. The world would stay safe and secure because of the nuclear arsenal. No side would act first because they knew the other side would respond with a bomb. The price of peace in this atomic era is strength and constant readiness to defend ourselves and our homes from any aggression. A single blow can today destroy the mightiest nation if the blow is allowed to fall. The fact of mutually assured destruction was a kind of insurance against aggression. This is where the distant early warning line, or dew line, came into play. The nation's leaders decided on a tremendous undertaking. This was to build a radar early warning line north of the Arctic Circle. Starting at the northernmost tip of Alaska, it would stretch 3,000 miles across the continent to Baffin Island, opposite Greenland. Distant Early Warning Line, they named it. Dew Line, it became. The Dew Line was built during a peak period of Cold War tension starting in the mid-1950s. A continental defense system. A string of radar stations that span North America and later, Greenland and Iceland. The shortest route for a nuclear missile from the USSR to reach cities in the United States was to take a path right over the North Pole, a path that required using Canadian airspace. What was once the impassable Arctic now provides the quickest routes for attack from a wide sector of Europe and Asia. If the Soviet Union launched atomic weapons using that shortcut, the DEW radar technicians would alert North American Aerospace Defense Command. 
that would give the U.S. Air Force three to six hours warning to take defensive action. So, if the Arctic was so impassable, how did these huge distant early warning stations get built? At the proposal to create such a line in that distant wilderness, old Arctic hands shook their heads in doubt. But the dew line had to be built there. Men had to conquer that unknown frozen wasteland and transform it into a vital outpost of Western civilization. An unknown frozen wasteland? The contractors for the U.S. Department of Defense considered the Arctic empty and an unthinkable place to live. But that southern view of the Arctic, it was false. Families have lived, worked, traveled, and prepared meals in the Arctic since time immemorial. I wanted to better understand Dewline stations and their effects in the Arctic during the Cold War. The Dew was the largest and most remote construction project in North America at the time. Absolutely everything had to be brought from the South, by sea or air. Every stick of wood, nails, tools, fuel, snowplows, technical equipment, tractors were even dropped by parachute. Design and construction were happening at the same time. They had two short Arctic summers to get it done. How did this mega project get built so quickly? What were its effects on the people who work there and who have always lived there? I spoke with Matt Farish. He's an associate professor at the University of Toronto and collaborator on the book The Coldest War, A History of the Distant Early Warning Line. I asked him, who built the Dew Line? So this is one of the most compelling and complicated aspects of the story, I think, is the actual design, development, construction of the line. I think the simplest way to understand it is that it was a project of the United States Air Force in close relationship with Canadian government partners that is then contracted out through a series of contracts and subcontracts down the line so to speak. Um, the key uh, industrial or corporate actor is the Western Electric Company, which is the engineering arm of the, the massive Bell system that we're all still familiar with. Um, and so Western Electric then goes out and subcontracts and arranges for um, a dizzying number of contracts of smaller firms, construction companies, transportation companies, um, to get the materials up to the high Arctic and then actually have this built. So what did these dewline stations look like? Have you seen pictures of Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome from Expo 67 or a Cinesphere at Ontario Place? They're geodesic domes. The dew stations had those domes too before they became symbols of utopia. They looked like weird giant golf balls Alien space stations just plopped on the land. They housed the radar equipment and kept it safe from the elements. They would often look like a cluster of low-slung, seemingly temporary or prefabricated buildings. Some people refer to them as submarines. Um, they look like trailers, essentially. They're very si simple in design, um, and they would be clustered up um, some distance from, not very far from, uh, a kind of major radar facility, complete with the famous radome or golf ball that we associate with 
uh, military radar. The harsh climate and terrain required hundreds of people to move quickly. Matt said hundreds more were needed once the stations were up and running. They would be employees of the contractor who would come up for stints, six months or a year at a time often, to work on the line across a small number of employment categories, from radar technicians to um, engineers to the folks who actually maintained the property. It was a very small number at some of the secondary and tertiary stations, maybe four or five people sometimes. But then at these major stations, there would be more of a support staff. There would be laborers. This is where we see the role of indigenous labor as well, particularly young Inuit men working at certain stations. And while the region was seen as uncharted territory by the military, there were, of course, long-standing communities in the Arctic. How did the dew affect indigenous lives, economies, and culture? Who's included in the dew line narrative? There are interesting repercussions as people move off the land and into some of these new communities or communities that now have dewline stations. There are complicated ripple effects across families um, as men leave seasonal work to move on to a, a dewline station for work. And their partners and kids are not permitted on the station. You might call it a military modernization piece as a bringer of uh, a certain kind of technology, but also, I think more importantly, a certain kind of normalized Southern lifestyle carried by these Southern employees who are coming up North and consuming certain kinds of food and um, living on these stations and watching movies and so on that come into um, a relationship, a complicated series of relationship with Indigenous lives in the North. Inuit peoples help build and operate the dew stations. But their families, ways of life, and economies were terribly disrupted. Didn't anyone think about this when the dew was being planned? There is virtually no reference to northern people on the part of the U.S. military or the U.S. scientists who are thinking about the dew line. But in Canada, the story is a little bit different, particularly because the, the federal government is grappling with complicated understandings of uh, quote-unquote responsibility for Indigenous peoples in the North um, and elsewhere. And so the dew line enters into this um, stew of debates and discussions, many of them quite paternalistic, but some of them more thoughtful. Once it was decided that this needed to be done and that it should be done, forget the cost, forget the effects on the land and the lives of people, it needs to be built. And the sort of sheer combination of hubris and confidence and determination and um, a sort of short-sightedness as well about um, putting this in place. Um, and it's not at all to excuse any of it, but uh, that, that determination overrode every other possible calculation of, of consequence. Matt also told me about a sociologist from the late 1950s named J.D. Ferguson. The Canadian government sent him north, along with a group of students, to research the impact of the dew on northern communities, communities that were primarily indigenous. You know, he understands the dew line as being a significant piece of a huge change that is sweeping the north, and really pointing out to his superiors and other people who are reading his reports back in Ottawa that 
as much as you might like to talk about trying to limit the consequences of something like the dew line on northerners, it's impossible. So it's not just in hindsight that we recognize the damage the dew caused to Indigenous peoples. There was a recognition as early as the 1950s. My recollection is that he felt that his work was effectively shelved, given that kind of Cold War national security imperative that seemed to overwhelm other kinds of concerns about civil rights or about, um, you know, understanding the, the, the ripple effects in terms of economic and social life in northern communities. And so this was a project that in that Cold War logic of national security had to be built, of continental defense had to be built, um, and damn the consequences, frankly, at the end of the day. The consequences were substantial on lives, but also on the land. In the last um, couple of decades, there's been an enormous attempt to clean up northern radar facilities um, at a cost of something like $500 million um, of our money. Um, and so the kind of uncanny echoes of this coming back in the latest um, versions of northern militarization, you have um, in particular contractors owned by or employing significant numbers of Indigenous people to clean up the waste of the dew line and other activity that was put down there in the 1950s. In 1998, a year before the creation of Nunavut, CBC North reporter Timothy Sawa looked at the toxic legacy of the dew line in Tuktoyaktuk. All the building waste that was supposed to be buried is now being stored on site. Hundreds of huge orange metal transport containers line the area, filled with the waste. Signs on the containers warn community residents. Danger, PCBs. An international study now shows that people in the Arctic are exposed to some of the highest levels of chemical contamination in the world. It found that Inuit children are at risk. To understand the impact of military radar on a community, I talked to Barry Anderson, who lives in Makovic, Newfoundland, and Labrador. His community is next to a small radar station. My name is Barry Anderson, and I'm from Makovic, Newfoundland, Labrador. It's a newly developed land claim area in northern Labrador. And I am the Hongyukok, or mayor. In his youth, he had lots of experience with the radar station down the road from his town. Born and raised here in Makovic, my dad and some of my uncles are also from here and worked and fished here all their lives and would tell stories uh, about the uh, dew line site. I'm also a Canadian Ranger with Department of National Defense, so I'm a Master Corporal uh, in that organization. We do uh, maintenance checks on the radar sites that's uh, automated here on the North Coast of Labrador now. We do that uh, biannually, twice a year, just to ensure that uh, the domes and everything is in place. There's no rips or tears and things like that, Uh, any damage, uh, wind damage or things like that to the sites. We report back to uh, North Bay, Ontario, and uh, through our headquarters in Gander. There's still a military surveillance presence in the North, the North Warning System. Barry is part of that as a Canadian ranger, part of the Canadian Armed Forces Reserve. He monitors the former Gap radar site and has seen the environmental consequences. They're still there. You see a whole bunch of little derricks um, 
that's probably the fuel that was discarded by the Americans he, um, into the sand. The, um, the radar site at Hopedale, the, the next community north of here, it's, it had a major impact on the community there for sure, because it was right in town, and right to this day, they're, they can't do, they can't build in certain areas because of the um, tar and PCBs that's uh, discarded there, and it's too difficult to clean up. I guess it's people thought it was, uh, or the young people would think it's bedrock, but it's just um, solid oil on the rock and the ground up there, and the community is still dealing with it. Yeah, there's a high incidence of cancer and stuff in the area, so it's probably all from the same discarded PCBs and that kind of thing, right? Two countries working together to provide their own long-range defense, an unparalleled example of harmonious cooperation between sovereign nations. Was everything and everyone really working together so harmoniously? I don't think so. The Dewline cleanup was declared complete in 2014, but the environmental and community effects are still felt. There's such myth-making around the idea of the North. Snow-laden, empty, untouched. That's the idea of the North. But it's not the lived history. It's not the history of Barry Anderson and his community And it's not the present of many communities that developed around or had contact with military radar installations. I went to visit someone else who spent a lot of time in the North, this time a former Dewline worker from the South, Brian Jeffrey. I'm just driving along Donald B. Monroe Drive out in the middle of a beautiful white snowfield past Farmland Road, and then all of a sudden there are these geodesic domes, and they're just there on their own. What? <laughs> so I'm pulling over to uh, to see what this is. It's CSS, Canadian Space Services Limited. So apparently these geodesic domes still have a function. Atheon. I'm going to get out of the car and see what's going on. Fortunately, they've plowed. This area is under 24-hour video surveillance. I don't know. I might not be allowed in here. After traipsing through a restricted area, I figured I'd better get out quickly. I drove another 10 minutes down the road to the home of Brian Jeffrey, just near the defund bunker in Carp, Ontario. He worked as a radar technician or redition, on the Dewline in the early 1960s. We settled into his basement radio room, filled with memorabilia from the Dewline. This is my, um, I guess the term is man cave, what I don't think kind of a particular <laughs> term. It's a, it's a nice a, man cave. Yeah, it's, it's a, a ham- nicer man cave yeah. than I've ever yeah. seen. It's a ham shack. I wondered, how does someone end up working at a radar base in the Arctic? So I got I got sucked into going up there by my mother who wanted to get rid of me. I think she found an ad in the paper. But I was working at the National Research Council at the time, looking after a computer there, which was turns out I now know very this. early computer. We're it talking nineteen fifty seven. This so was the very first computer ever sold in Canada. 
So what did you do on on the two line? I was what was called I was at what was called a radition, Mm -hmm. which is radar technician. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, as a radition, you spent four hours of your shift uh, watching the radar, and another four hours doing maintenance. Right. And, and usually preventive maintenance is really seldom that things break. Main station, as I said, around 50, maybe 75 mm-hmm. on a really bad, busy day. Oxites were normally 15 people, 14 to 15, of which seven of us were technicians. Um, and there may be a couple more in, in the summertime when you got work on. The eyesights, uh, I think the one I was at, we, there were five of us, and that was it. And I was there for six months. You know. But that was my doorway into the sector crew, which was the, the elite of the elite technicians. And I said, I wanted to, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, and they said, well, you go to an eyesight for six months and we will... Con-. Nobody wanted to go to an eyesight. Absolutely nobody. It was, you're the only technician there. Uh, you cannot leave the building, theoretically, because you have to be there instantly when the alarms go off to, to change the, you know, whatever needs to be done. You can imagine that some of the communications were highly secret and could only be reviewed by military officials with proper clearance. Each main station would have uh, about five or six military personnel. The Canadian ones were primarily Canadian with a U.S. officer. The ones in the U.S. were primarily U.S. officers with a Canadian contingent. So there was always both at at, at Mm -hmm. the main sites. There were certain messages that came into the stations that they would hand to the military personnel because they had higher security clearance. They probably would have been encrypted. Yeah. And so at each station, there was at least one, if not two, uh, crypto technicians. They were always American. So the Canadians were never allowed to to, uh, encrypt or decrypt messages. We simply weren't trained. And the mess- it'd, be a, it'd be a Twix, basically. A Twix is basically the Morse code message. That we couldn't understand. Okay. It's just gibberish until you feed it through the uh, crypto machine. And then, you know, it's like the, uh, what's the German one? Enigma. Enigma. You, know, you type in things and yeah, the message yeah. comes oh, up. Oh, did it actually look like that? No. Oh, okay. I, in fact, I've never seen one. I've seen pictures yeah. of them, but we were not allowed uh, back in that area. But during the Cuban Missile Crisis, what we did is we doubled up on the radar and we were, there was two of us there, and we stopped doing any maintenance unless oh. something broke. And um, we were not sure there was going to be a South to come home to. And we also knew that nobody was going to come and get us. Um, like 15 people in the middle of nowhere, you know, ain't going to happen. No South to come home to. The isolation of the Dewline and anxiety about the state of the world changed him for the rest of his life. A lot of people don't understand how such a small part of life, I mean, I'm, I'm 79 now, that was three years out of 79. Why does it live so big? Why is it such an enormous event? And I think it's because it was uh, such a unique experience shared by so few people. You know, and, and there's a brotherhood, unspoken brotherhood, and somebody, somebody once said, once a do-liner, always a do-liner. So many players, so many lives affected, some for a few months and some for generations. The Cold War sense of duty, the doing what needed to be done, it can't be detangled from the intrusion into ways of life. It affected individuals, communities, and nations. And its reality in the Arctic means we can't think of the North as an idea. It's a land with history, 
and people. Decades on from the end of the Cold War, I can't help but marvel that there's probably as much communication power right now in the palm of my hand than there was at Cape Dyer or the Diefenbunker. That power, so much a part of our contemporary life, owes so much to the militarization of technology, the militarization of the Arctic, as well as their terrible consequences. This program was produced by me, Melanie Ward, with assistance from Sarah Martin. Special thanks to Nancy Payne and Kylie Nicolaisen. Our sound editor is Andrew Workman. Thank you to CBC Licensing and the AT&T Archives and History Center. You can get more stories about Canada's history by subscribing to our magazine. It's called Canada's History. The website's easy to remember. CanadasHistory.ca slash subscribe. Thanks for listening.